Well, it's good to be here today, and yesterday my wife and I celebrated 23 years of being married to each other. How about that? Yes. And, uh, you know, uh, we celebrated it by, my wife is a field hockey coach at Messiah, and she had an all-day clinic, so she was there celebrating our anniversary, and I was home with our kids and doing other things celebrating our anniversary, and so when that all ended at about 6.30 and she got home and made a quick change and we, uh, we jumped in the car and uh, ran over to actually the location of our first date, which was walking along um, kind of the, uh, what do they call that, Riverwalk in Harrisburg. That was the first time uh, we went out. We just kind of took a walk in Harrisburg together. And so we went over and walked the river last night as the sun was setting and the Senators were playing, and I don't even know who was winning, but somebody did hit a home run when we were coming back across the bridge. So uh, it looked like it was Senators because they, lots of people were cheering. Uh, but it was a great night, and one of the things, though, that we were talking about, uh, you know, 23 isn't really a big milestone or whatever they call those, uh, what are the big ones? Anyway, it's not, it's not a big one, but I always think, how old's my oldest son? He's 21. We've been married two years longer. Okay, 20, 23 years. That's how many years we've been married. And we were talking about how many times... In marriage, you know, what were, what were the sweet seasons? What were the good years? Um, you know, in, in any relationship, not just in your relationship, but the way life comes at you uh, together and separately, there, there are sweet seasons, there are tough seasons, you know? And we were kind of going back and looking at, were there any years in there where, you know, there, was no, there were no earthquake events in our life, where it was just kind of smooth sailing for a while? We felt like maybe somewhere between our third son uh, and then our, our fourth, which was our, our first daughter, somewhere right in that window, we thought, okay, yeah, there was a really sweet season in there for a few years where it didn't seem like we had a lot of loss and just things in the family were kind of moving along, and, and uh, we were so thankful for God's faithfulness. But it really called us back to that place of just remembering um, God's goodness in our lives and remembering what it means, though, to learn how to put your trust in each other and how to put your trust in Jesus when you're going through the challenging seasons in life as well. And so today we're going to kind of lean into that a little bit in, in just a few moments. And I was joking around before the first service. I said, boy, on campus switch day, we sure did pick a, a really tough one to jump into together. Uh, but it's a good one today. So I hope your hearts are ready. Let me just, can I just pray that way before I go any further? Lord, I'm so grateful for today. And I am so grateful that as we've been working through your word together and looking at what it means to be a part of this kingdom that's here and a part of this kingdom that's coming. Um, Lord, that when you taught us and your disciples how to pray, you said, um, pray this way. Pray that thy kingdom come, thy will be done, both here on earth as it is in heaven. So we welcome your kingdom here today on earth. God, would you give us a little taste of heaven today as we jump in and we open our hearts to you? We expect, God, that you're going to meet us in this place today, each of us, right where we are. No matter what our week's been like, no matter how we bring ourselves in, we expect that you're going to meet us here and that you're going to do a work of transformation in us as we're in your presence together. We're grateful for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to talk about a subject that has shaped cultures and it's really defined religions over time, but you don't have to be a religious person to be obsessed with it or consumed with it. In fact, hundreds, maybe thousands of movies and even now TV shows have been themed on this subject. And since 1950, each decade, that number of movies and TV shows and books, all, they've all kind of doubled 
So our interest in this uh, seems to be increasing. Can anybody guess what all these movies and shows and books are about, what we're talking about today? Any guesses? Love, that's a good one. That's not it, but that's a great one. <laughs> so here it is. The end of the world. Apocalyptic stuff, right? And lately, for some reason, it seems to always be associated with zombies in our world. Do, do we have any zombie fans out there? Apocalyptic It's okay to be honest. If Pastor Sean and Susie were here, they have a show that they love to watch. It's all about zombies. I've never, I've, I've not quite entered into that, uh, but it's not because I'm too spiritual. I'm just not interested. Uh, but anyway, we have this obsession kind of with the end of the world, with, uh, with apocalyptic things. How is the world going to end? And so I want to ask you this morning, what do you think's behind our world's fixation with the end? What's behind all of it? I believe underneath our focus on the end is really a fear of the end. It's, it's a deep-seated fear of the end. Every person on the planet will at some point be forced to kind of grapple with this question of what happens to us in the end. And I don't want you to be surprised here, but the truth about this is someday your life is going to end. My life is going to end. This is a reality. It's the truth. And maybe you don't fear the apocalypse, but I, I bet, I bet that you'd at least, you've at least taken some time to think about some of the more serious questions about the end of your life. Questions like, what might happen to me in the moments right after I die? Maybe you've thought about, what are people going to say about me when I die? What are people going to say about me after I'm gone? Maybe you've thought about this. Will I have lived a meaningful life before I die? Well, in all of the funerals that I've been a part of as a pastor, do you know there's one thing that I've discovered that I think it actually is good news, and that's this, that the reality of the end of our lives being upon us seems to bring perspective about how we should prepare for it. And then the corollary is true as well, that the fear of the end of your life also causes you to wonder about whether or not you're prepared for it and it can rob the joy of living if you're afraid of the end of your life. It may even lead you to destructive living if you're afraid of the end of your life. And Jesus actually spends a lot of time addressing the end of the world and also the end of our lives. Because his disciples, I believe, like us, had many questions about it. Today we're going to explore how Jesus encourages us to be prepared for the end by looking at a story that he tells in Matthew chapter 25. And this story kind of sheds some light on this coming eternal kingdom that Jesus is talking about, that we've been talking about throughout this series, Jesus didn't want his disciples to be surprised. Now, before we look at what Jesus says in Matthew 25, we have to understand the questions that Jesus' disciple, the question that they had asked him in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 24. As a matter of fact, Jesus takes two chapters, all the rest of chapter 24 and 25, to really address this one question that his disciples ask in 24. So we want to go back and look at that question. We'll start at the beginning of the conversation this morning before we address the answer. So I want to set the context for what Jesus and his disciples were experiencing in this moment. Jesus and his closest followers were walking alongside beside the temple, and his disciples were admiring the temple mount and the temple buildings. Now let me ask you, has anyone in the room been to Israel before? Okay, just me and Alan. Alan went with me. There you go. Uh, listen, let me tell you something about Israel. First of all, I'll share this with you. Pastor Sean and I were just having this discussion this week. 
we'd love to go to Israel and take a bunch of daybreakers with us in the next few years. So get ready for that, okay? For those of you in the room where that's always been a life dream, we'd like to open that door in the next couple of years. But here's something that you'll never forget if you've been in Israel. That is when you're coming up on the old city of Jerusalem and you see the, the, the Temple Mount, really the, the cornerstone of the city, and the buildings that were once on it are no longer there. Uh, in fact, the Dome of the Rock is there right now. Um, that's a Muslim thing, and we're not going to get into any of that this morning. But the Temple Mount is an incredibly impressive archaeological structure. And you can only imagine when you stand outside the city, the old city, and you look at it, what it must have been like for people to approach the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount at that point. As they walked up, um, it would have been similar to, you know, you go to D.C. and you see some of the monuments, or you go to New York City and you see some of the buildings, and you almost just are forced to pause and look at the height or the immensity, just the building in and of itself. The buildings are impressive. They're, they're monumental. And so disciples are walking along, and they're coming alongside of the temple. They're, they're speaking and admiring the temple, uh, the, archaeo- uh, the architecture of it. But in addition to that, the, the buildings being big and beautiful, historically, the temple, and in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, always represented the housing of the presence of the eternal God. So when the Israelites, when the people of God were wandering in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle. And some of you remember the Ark of the Covenant that traveled and was in the centerpiece of the tabernacle. If you watch the Indiana Jones movies, you'll know that. Uh, but the, the Ark of the Covenant housed the presence of God, the very presence of God. And then when the, the, uh, the Israelites settled in Jerusalem and they were there, then the Temple Mount housed... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and the presence of God and the Holy of Holies there in that place. You have to remember, this is before Jesus died on the cross and, and rose from the grave, and then the Holy Spirit became ours, and so now we can embody it and, and have the very presence of God with us. But this was before that time. So in the, as the disciples are walking along with Jesus and they're seeing the temple and all that it stood for, Jesus notices what their conversation, and he says this. He predicts that the temple is going to be destroyed. And the disciples are shaken by this. And, and truth be told, they didn't know this, but the temple would be destroyed 70 years after Jesus' death by Rome. Rome would come in and destroy the city of Jerusalem. The temple mount would be destroyed. And so here are the disciples, and, and uh, Jesus is saying, look, the, temple, the temple's not going to last. It's not eternal. That's not what you put your hope in, as they're admiring this big thing that they're so proud of. That, that's not it. That's not the end of the day. It's not eternal. And this would be like if I predicted to you this morning, hey, before too long, all of Washington, D.C. is going to fall and, and all will be laid flat. And so the disciples are in fear. They're thinking about, what does this mean? If the temple's going to be destroyed, what does this mean about the end? What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to God, God's people? So in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, it says this. It says, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. So they went by the temple and went out of the city and up onto the Mount of Olives. It said, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. And his disciples came to him privately, and they said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? So they asked Jesus this question. They say, Jesus, when are you going to return? How is your kingdom going to come? What's the end going to look like? Can you give us a clue of what to expect so that we can prepare ourselves for what's coming? And even though the disciples were asking it this way, I think the disciples, much like us at times, were just afraid. And they were like, Jesus, give us some assurance that in the end it's going to be okay for us. So in fact, we see this later in Matthew 24. Jesus says that he doesn't even know the time or the date when his return will be, when he'll come and usher in the new kingdom and the new age, that only the Father knows the time and the day 
which is kind of funny when you think about all the people down throughout time who have tried to predict uh, when the date is going to be of Christ's return. I wonder if Jesus is impressed that they're able to predict something that he doesn't even know, that the Father hasn't even let him in on yet. I don't know. I think about poor God the Father has to keep on changing the date and moving it forward every time somebody guesses it properly. Um, he wants it to be a surprise. I don't, I don't know how all that works. I'm just, I'm just processing how, how some of this, uh, how we try, we try in all of our standing in some way to find security and being able to predict and to know things so that we can be secure. So let's look at the clear answer that Jesus gives to his disciples' question. There's only one clear answer about when the end will come, and we find it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. It says this, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. And I want to tell you, this is why I am so thankful to be a part of a larger family of churches known as the Alliance, who are very globally focused. And whether you know it or not, as Daybreak, we're part of a bigger family of churches all over the world who are focused on what we say within the Alliance, on bringing back the king, ushering in God's kingdom to make sure that every tribe, every tongue, every nation has the opportunity to hear the good news of the kingdom of God so that we can be a part of his return. Because this is the only clue that we have in Scripture as to when, the, when God's kingdom will begin, when he'll usher in this new kingdom. So Jesus makes this one statement, and this helps us understand. The reason I share that with you is it helps us understand the context for the three stories or parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. There's simply a continuation of Jesus' answer to the question that his disciples ask in Matthew 24. And Jesus says this, let the gospel, the good news, actually prepare. It will be what prepares you for the end. So what is the good news about the kingdom? What is the main theme of Jesus' answer to the questions that his disciples ask him? What's the theme of it? Well, it's, this is the theme that we're going to see as we look today. And that's this, that the end is just the beginning. The end is just the beginning. So the gospel means good news. It's actually literally translated as the good news, uh, the word the gospel. But I think that's actually underplaying it a little bit. Because I think if we would translate it today in modern terms, we would actually translate it like the dot greatest dot news dot ever. You know, that kind of thing. Because it really is so much bigger than just good news. You know, I think sometimes when we say it as it's the good news about Jesus, I think that we really don't fully understand the weight of this good news. And I want to illustrate it in a couple different ways this morning. Think about it. If you won the lottery this week, let's say this past week, three days ago, you found out you won the lottery, would you still be thinking about that and celebrating it this morning? I think you would. It wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, that happened on Thursday. My week's been so full. I haven't even had time to think about the couple million dollars that I just won a few days ago. Like, no, I think you'd still be thinking about it this morning. I think you'd still be weighing out the implications of you having that much money and how that, what that was going to do in your life, how that was going to change your life. If I was the person who delivered the big check to you this morning, you know, if I came in, big check, three million, whatever it is on there, I think you'd be a little bit excited. I think that's great news. That would be good news. But this is what Jesus says. He says, I have good news for you this morning. You just won the spiritual lottery. You just won it. The worst thing that could ever happen to you, the worst thing that could ever happen to you, death itself, the end of your life is no longer a concern for you. 
it should no longer cause fear in your life. You don't have to fear being unprepared for death because the end isn't the end. It's just the beginning. I read this article a couple of months ago, and I tried to find it before this morning's service, but I couldn't. It actually traced back almost all of the fear that we have in life is rooted in our fear of death. Almost every fear that we have is rooted in our fear of our end. I had never thought of it that way before, but it went on in the article to explain it. So if you think about this gift that Jesus has given us, when you think about this great news, that the very thing that we most fear, that maybe is the source of all of our fear, death itself or our end, is no longer of concern for you. That should really change the way that you live. If you don't have to fear death, you should really be able to live a life that's full and abundant, the life that God has promised for us, that we're able to live as we not only await his coming kingdom, but as we experience and live out his kingdom right now. And here's the really good news. Jesus says that we can actually be prepared for our end in such a way that we look forward to it. Now, how many of you have ever thought of death as something that you looked forward to? I mean, really. Um, My wife and I have talked about this before because, um, you know, when a woman gets pregnant, especially maybe if it's your first pregnancy, there's this excitement about pregnancy, and then there's this thought, depending on when you find out, oh my goodness, seven or eight months or so from now, I'm going to have to actually give birth to this baby. Like that experience of labor and the, and, and the fear of that. And then what happens when you move down the road and, you know, you're like eight, eight and a half months pregnant, you're like, when can I give birth to this baby? Just, I am ready. Let me, get, let me give birth to this baby. All of a sudden, the fear maybe is gone and the baby's born. And the Bible even talks about that. And all of a sudden, it's, it's a new day. It's a beginning. And this is what Jesus is saying. I think the same thing is true in our lives, though, right? When I was young, I didn't even want to think about heaven. I didn't even want, because I had so much I felt like I wanted to experience in this life. Heaven seemed a little too intangible for me to get my arms around, right? So I wanted to milk this life for all it was worth. When I was younger, I was just thinking about, God, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to live. Like, I want to experience life here. And then as I move throughout life, and I think this is true of all of us as we move along in our journey, we start to experience some loss, and we start to experience some hardship. And all of a sudden, we realize that all the things that we had put so much hope into experiencing here, there are some beautiful and sweet gifts from God in this life. But all of a sudden, we start to ready ourselves for what's to come because we've also experienced the hardships of this life. So by the time many of us who have walked with Jesus get a little further along in life, we say, okay, God, this life has been sweet. This life has been good, but I'm ready. I'm ready for eternity with you. I'm ready for a new beginning. I'm ready for the next step. And this is what Jesus was preparing his disciples for in this conversation. So the rest of Matthew 24 and 25 are dedicated to helping them understand that the end is unavoidable. But the good news is this, that Jesus made a way for us so that we can see it as a new beginning. So we're going to unpack this first story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25, and it's in verses 1 through 13. Let me read a few verses for you. Verse 1, it starts with this. Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy, and fell asleep. So this whole series we've been talking about the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and Jesus has pointed us in a lot of different directions of what we'll know or what we can experience 
the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven like? And today, we're going to look at how Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like bridesmaids. Bridesmaids? Really, Jesus? Can you explain this? Well, let me explain it to you. In Jewish custom, the Jewish custom for marriage actually took place in two different ceremonies. The first was betrothal. And in betrothal, it was a lot like engagement, but they were actually legally married the second that they were betrothed to each other. So they didn't live together. They didn't consummate their marriage. Uh, but the bride in the season of betrothal would get ready for the wedding while the groom would go and prepare a home for the two of them to live in. It was kind of like engagement for us, except uh, we aren't legally married yet when we're engaged, and they were already, it was the first step of marriage for them. So then the second step is this. When the, when the groom got the home ready, and forgive me, I'm going to say this today, and I might not even notice when I say it. When Pastor Sean and I were preparing this message, and we were talking about the bridegroom, that doesn't always come out so easy, and we, we kept saying the broom. So if, if I say the broom instead of the groom, understand it's because I've been trying to say bridegroom, and I've been messing that up this week. <laughs> okay. So a little grace in me, you can just kind of laugh, and I'll know what I said. So the bridegroom, when he gets the home ready, whenever that time comes, he goes and he gets the bride, and then he takes her to their new home, and they have this giant celebration to finalize their marriage vows to each other. And they have a feast together. And sometimes this thing would last for days or even a full week. And if, to be a part of that celebration was a big, big deal. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But those were the, the kind of the two parts to the marriage ceremony. So Jesus is saying this. He's telling a story in which the kingdom of heaven is like the time between betrothal and the final wedding ceremony. Okay? And this actually... This is what we talk about with the kingdom is here now and the kingdom is coming. So we're kind of in the first stage of our marriage to Jesus. We're referred to in scripture, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, we're referred to as the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. But we're kind of in this first phase. And when God's kingdom come, comes fully, when it's the end of our lives or when Jesus returns for us, then at that point, we'll be fully married to him. We'll, it'll be the second phase of our union with God. And we'll experience will be fully consummated in our marriage with God. And this will be a beautiful new part of God's kingdom that we begin to experience at that point. We're like the bridal party waiting to celebrate the kingdom of heaven. It's a beautiful picture that Jesus uses. And look what he says about the bridegroom's arrival. He didn't say broom once yet, I don't think. That's good. In verse 6, he says this, At midnight they were roused by a shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. So let's pause there for a minute. So when the bridegroom is ready, the bridal party has to be ready too, whatever time that might be. They had to be prepared even at midnight when things look dark at the most unexpected hour. Because when the bridegroom comes, that's when everything that they've been looking forward to, everything that they've been anticipating actually begins. And in Jewish tradition, this part of the ceremony, this second phase of the betrothal process, of the marriage process, actually mostly happened in an evening. And that the way that you could tell the difference between the wedding party and the wedding crashers was how they were prepared. Because everybody wanted to get in on a wedding party back in those days. So my brother is a pastor just off Hilton Head Island in South Carolina in an area called the Low Country in Bluffton, South Carolina. And he and his wife are some of the most amazing people. They are really fun people to be around. And my sister-in-law, I'll just admit it, she's a little bit certifiably crazy. She's just, she's crazy fun. 
But she has this habit, and they've been doing it for like the 20 years that they've lived in Hilton Head. The two of them love to crash weddings. There are tons of weddings along the beach on Hilton Head Island. So anytime that they're at the beach and they're walking along and the beach, they love to just make their way into a wedding party. And they love to act as if they were invited and fully belong and that they know everybody, much to the confusion often of the guests and sometimes even the bride and groom. Do you know these people? Who are these folks? But they're just so good with people, they love to just kind of blend in and have a good time. And my sister-in-law, in all of her insanity, actually really loves to find a way that she can dance with the groom and get a photo with him as part of that was another wedding that we crashed all the time, convincing the groom that he actually knows who she is and how she's connected to them and bringing up life experiences that they've had in some way. And it, the whole thing is just hilarious. But I want to translate this back. The wedding party. And back in those days in Jerusalem, everybody wanted to be a part of a wedding because it was a feast. It was a feast, and it lasted for days. And to make this even richer, in some other translations of Scripture, they actually talk about ten virgins instead of ten bridesmaids. And this is why that's important to know. Because oftentimes, the bridal party found their future spouse at a wedding party. It was kind of like a big deal. It was a social event that you wouldn't believe. This lasted for days. And if you knew this family and you were associated with this family and you knew these people were going to be coming and you knew you might find your future spouse in the party, right? So they wanted to be there. They wanted to be ready. So this is kind of the setting for understanding how all of this went down in Jewish tradition. So the disciples would have understood where this was going. It was all about being prepared. You wanted to be ready when the party got started. Running out of oil at night was like running out of bread and milk in a Pennsylvania snowstorm, okay? You just can't do it. You can't risk it, right? You got to clear the shelves at the grocery store. You got to be ready. So Jesus says that amidst the crew of bridesmaids, there are these two groups within the bridesmaids, the wise and the foolish. Both were excited for the bridegroom's appearance. Both were looking forward to the arrival of the groom and the bride. What was the difference between the two? Well, the foolish bridesmaids... Scripture said, Jesus said, weren't prepared for the coming celebration. I don't know why they weren't prepared. Maybe they were a little too focused on having fun at the pre-party before the real party opened up. I'm not sure. Remember, this is actually one of three stories that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 that all have the same point, and that's that we need to be prepared. Don't be surprised. You can be ready. You can be prepared, Jesus is telling his disciple. When will we know that the end of the age is coming? When will we? They wanted a date. Jesus said, you don't need to know the date. You can be prepared for whenever it is. You know, as a pastor, I've had the privilege of walking with people when the reality of their mortality gets very real for them. And most times, people don't think of the end as the beginning. They fear the end because they think of the end as the end. I hear things like, man, I just wish I had more time, or I don't even want to think about it. I'm really afraid of what's going to happen to me or happen to my family once I'm gone, so I'm just avoiding thinking about it. My wife's grandfather uh, passed away a couple years ago this spring at 93 years old. 93? 93, 92, somewhere in there. He passed away a couple of years ago, and my wife and her mom had a beautiful conversation with him a couple of days uh, before he passed. And it was this conversation where he was just being honest. He said, this is a guy who lived in 92 or 93. I never thought it would go so quickly. I never dreamed my life would go so quickly. He knew it was coming to an end. 
And he's looking back on 92 or 93 years just saying, it just flew by. And this is a man who lived his life well. And at the end of his life, especially in the years at the end, really wanted to make his, sure his heart was prepared spiritually to be with God. Incredible. You know, I think our society has done everything possible to avoid this question. All we want to focus on is living, right? All we want to talk about is how to milk the most out of this life. We like to distract ourselves from thinking about the fact that we're going to have an end. Maybe you think of death that way, that it is the end. But the truth is, we can't avoid death, but we can be prepared for it. Jesus said we can. So there's this second group of bridesmaids, the wise bridesmaids, who weren't just thinking about the moment. They weren't distracted. They wanted to be ready. They wanted to be prepared. So they took not only the effort to make sure their lamps were filled with oil, but they also took, made the effort to make sure that they brought extra oil so that they could be prepared if they had to wait long into the night for the bridegroom. They were thinking, when the bridegroom arrives, I want to be part of this celebration, so I want to be prepared. So Jesus' story continues, and let's see what happens when the bridegroom makes his arrival. In verse 7, it says this, All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps when the announcement came, The bridegroom is coming. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough oil for all of us, for us and for you. Go to a shop. Try to find a 24-hour place somewhere. Go, go and buy some oil for yourselves. Let's pause there. So they all awaken. Both the wise and foolish bridesmaids start to prepare their lamps, except for the foolish realize that they don't have enough oil. They want to set their lamps on fire. They want that, but they can't because they're not prepared. So they go off somewhere late at night trying to find a place where maybe they can buy more oil. They thought there was plenty of time, but now the bridegroom is here, and they don't have their act together. The wise basically remind the foolish, look, you should have been responsible for your own lamp. You know, this is kind of like preparing for retirement. I think there are a couple of camps when it comes to preparing for retirement. You might, spend, you might be in the first camp and you spend a lot of time thinking and preparing and planning for retirement. You're trying to put money aside for that. You've been doing that for years. Maybe you're confident because you've prepared or maybe you're always worrying about it. Maybe you're always online checking the status of your 401k or whatever vehicle you're using for retirement and you're constantly thinking about that. And then I think there's another camp of people as it relates to retirement. And that camp of people basically is ignoring retirement pretending it's not going to happen because maybe they're afraid of it, or maybe they've never worked a job where they felt like they've had enough money to put anything away for retirement. And so they just think, I guess I'm just going to work till I'm dead, so I won't think about retirement at all. There's nothing I can really do about it anyway. Here's something interesting to think about. Most of us spend our whole lives preparing for something that, according to the U.S. life expectancy age and the average retirement age, we spend our whole lives preparing for something that we'll spend five to maybe 15 years at most enjoying. So I want you to think about the average retirement age now. Men and women is right around 65. It's getting further on in life. In the U.S. right now, the average uh, death, the time of death, and men, it's, the news is worse for you, like 76.2 years old, guys. That's the average age. That's when we call it all at the end, for women, you get a little longer, it's like 81 years old, something like that is the average age. But either way, in all of this, we have such a short season to enjoy something that we spend all our lives being concerned about and all our lives being worried about. 
So with that in mind, I want to ask you this tougher question this morning. If you spend most of your life preparing for just a few years at the end, how much time and energy are you spending preparing for eternity? You spend your whole life working on one bank account or one vehicle for a few years at the end of your life. How much energy and time are you investing into eternity? I want you to remember that chapter 25 is all about preparation. And so with that in mind, let's go to the end of the story, starting in verse 10. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, Jesus says, for you don't know the day or the hour of my return. And some of you are here this morning, and you're scratching your head, and you're kind of like, Jesus, this isn't how the story's supposed to end. Where's the part where the bridegroom come out and says, ah, I'll just let it slide. You weren't ready. Come on in. I'm a God of grace. It's all going to be okay. What about the, where the bridegroom just has compassion and lets everybody in? Doesn't everybody get a trophy at the end of the story? Doesn't everyone go to heaven in the end? Tell us a better story. I think the point of this story that Jesus tells is this. There's an end. And the bridegroom needs to have a relationship with you at the end. And that's really important. That's sobering. But don't miss the good news of this story. You don't need to be surprised. You don't need to fear the end because the end doesn't have to be the end. The end can be the beginning for you. The parable of the bridesmaids is primarily a message about you and I, from Jesus to you and I about being ready. But there's also a stark warning from Jesus about what happens to those who aren't prepared spiritually for the end. You know, there are a lot of things in life that we can get by without being prepared for, right? There are a lot of things in life that we can just wing, right? But Jesus wants you to hear this this morning. What happens to you at the end of your life is not one of the things that you can afford to wing. You need to be prepared. So the end is a reality. And the question that we're left with is this, will the end be an eternity separated from God or a new beginning with God for us forever. And if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and you said, Jesus, will you forgive my sins? Will you lead my life? If you've done that, your relationship with him should make you feel like I am prepared, and I am on the journey of being even more prepared as I work my way through this life. It doesn't matter how good your life is on this planet. The question is, do you know Jesus, and does he know you? It doesn't matter how messy your life is on this planet because the Bible says and Jesus says clearly that there's hope in the end for all of us because it's not about what we've done. It's about who we know. It's about who we have relationship. And this is the beautiful part. Jesus openly offers that relationship to anyone who seeks it. This is the good news. This is the greatest news ever, that Jesus openly offers a relationship with God to anyone who seeks it. You matter to God. That's why Jesus gave his life for you, out of love for you. The parable raises our understanding of what's at stake. It reminds us that we don't have to be afraid of the end or the end of our lives. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a bridal party. 
who is anticipating the arrival of the bridegroom. And they've done everything that they can do to prepare, to honor their relationship with him. They're excited about the bridegroom because they're prepared for the feast. And when I read this story, do you know what else stuck with me? This piece struck me, and I don't even know that this was Jesus, any part of Jesus' intention in telling this, this story to the disciples. But it kind of stood out to me. What really broke my heart is this, that I identified with the five bridesmaids who want to be prepared. But then this question hit me. Do I see the foolish bridesmaids all around me, and am I helping them get prepared in any way? How deeply do I love others? How much do I pray that God will make their hearts hungry so that they can be prepared? When I thought about that, it kind of breaks my heart and it convicts me. And it's what makes me look around and say, God, who's unprepared in my life? Who's not ready? Who's still living in fear of what's going to happen in the end? Who's in need? How can I love them, serve them? The end is a reality for each of us. But the end is also a reality for the people who we love. The end is a reality for the people that we work with, for the people that we go to school with. This isn't fantasy land if you believe in Jesus. Your end could be 50 years from now or it could be tomorrow. The end could be tomorrow or it could be 50 years from now. We don't know. But what we do know is this. The kingdom of heaven is an invitation for us to live by faith because the end does not need to be a source of fear. It can be a source of hope because it's going to be a new beginning, one we are, where we are finally fully married to Jesus and we are able to experience the kingdom of God in its fullness. And I can tell you this much, it's going to be way better. It's going to be far grander. It's going to be far more than we could ever imagine or expect. And God says, I want you to be prepared for it. And for those of you who have put your faith in Jesus and you've learned to love him, you can't get away from this. If you love Jesus, you also have to love his mission in this world. And his mission in this world is people. God has a deep, deep love for people. Have you ever seen what it looks like when someone faces death who is prepared? Have you ever seen what it looks like when someone faces death who isn't prepared? I can almost guarantee you that the identifying factor that would help you understand who's prepared and who's not is who's afraid and who's not. The people who are prepared aren't afraid. Our church family has experienced losses lately. Some tough losses. Some of them, people you're close to. Two of our staff members lost parents in the past couple of weeks. One of them celebrated. And I say that they still experienced their loss, but their parent had been on a long, debilitating journey physically, and they knew that their parent was ready. Their parent articulated, I've lived a good life. I am ready to go. I'm ready to go and be with God. So they celebrated even in the loss. The other staff member had been concerned for her mom as to whether or not her mom was really prepared. And so in the last days of her life, actually, her mom looked into her eyes and said, I want a faith like you and your husband's. 
She said, I want a faith that takes me beyond death. Wow. Wow. I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared? You know, most of us want to be prepared for the big things in life, right? We want to be prepared for things like weddings and babies and home purchases and retirement and life insurance because all those things feel like they're the biggies and they're things that we feel like we should be prepared for. But Jesus is saying, this moment, the end, or the end of your life, quite possibly, should be the biggest thing that you spend your life preparing for. It's the big one. It's the biggie. And the good news about the kingdom is that Jesus says we can be prepared. We don't have to just be afraid. We can actually start anticipating it. We can actually get excited about it. It's kind of like that picture of when a parent comes home after they've been away on a trip and the kids are running down the hall to the front door and jumping into their arms. Mommy, Daddy. They're excited. They knew their parent was returning. And they couldn't wait for the time when they'd be reunited with them. I want to ask, are you living your faith out that way? And here's the good news. God did the hard part. Jesus did all the heavy lifting for us on the cross. So your only role is putting your faith in Christ. Your only role is seeking a relationship with him. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? You know, in a spirit of prayer, just before I lead you in prayer this morning, I want to ask you to consider your own preparation for a moment today. I want to ask you this question. How prepared are you for the end? Are you confident in your preparation? If Jesus came tomorrow or tomorrow was your last day, are you ready? Do you have confidence that you know him, that he knows you? Well, this is the good news. You can be prepared this morning. Maybe this morning you're ready to commit to a new and deeper relationship with Jesus so that you can be prepared. This morning I want to ask you, nobody's looking, but if you would like to be prepared this morning, if you just would like to say, God, I want to make sure I'm prepared. I want to enter into a relationship with you that brings me that kind of security. Would you just raise your hand, just slip it up real quick and back down. Let me pray for you. You can pray with me in your heart. Lord Jesus, I want to be prepared. I want a relationship with you. Would you forgive me of my past? Give me a fresh start with you. Come into my life. Lead me, God. Help me to live a new life with you that not only has me anticipating eternity, but has me waking up every day looking forward to what you have for me in this day. God, that I might pray, may your kingdom come in my heart and in my life today. Amen. Some of you might be here this morning and you might be confident in your own preparation, but maybe the message this morning brought to mind for you much like it did for me. And you're thinking of others around you who you know aren't prepared. You're thinking of others who might live in fear. And I want to encourage you this morning, maybe God's prompting your heart that this Easter is your opportunity to invite them to hear a message of hope in who Jesus is. Maybe God's speaking to your heart and you 
you say, hey, I got to get this invitation into the hand of someone who's not prepared because God's at work in their life, whether I know it or not. And I want to be a part of that work that God is doing in their heart. If that's you this morning and God's prompted your heart for someone else, just throw your hand up real quick. All right, can I pray for all of us in that way? God, would you prompt our hearts this morning so that we'd have a heart for for people the same way that you did? Lord, would you help us to maybe have a sense of urgency on behalf of others? Jesus, we commit your mission is our mission. To rescue people who, who are in fear or living life apart from you, God, and help them to know that they can win the spiritual lottery. They can not only know but experience the greatest news ever loves them deeply, and he's made a way for them to be in relationship with him, not just for now, but for eternity. God, we're so grateful. Prompt our hearts, God. Help us to be people who live with the hope of Easter and welcome others into that hope as well. Help us, God, to help others be prepared. To be willing to invite them on a life-changing journey with you, Lord Jesus.